Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Siegel. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Dom Jolie. And before we get to Dom, here's a few announcements. Our website is TravelTalesPodcast.com. And there you'll find some photos of our guests and links to their sites and socials. And then you'll find stories that I've written and stories that some of the guests have written. And you'll find links to our socials, which is, of course... Let's see, where do we start? Travel Tales Podcast on Instagram, Travel Tales Pod on X. Um, we have a Facebook page, Travel Tales Podcast. Subscribe to us there, follow us, do what you got to do. Also, find us on YouTube at Travel Tales Podcast. If you punch that in, you can see the videos that I've made over the years. And uh, subscribe to that, because I'm going to add a few more as well. Coming up. Also, uh, if you want to write me, if you know somebody who'd be right for the show, maybe you uh, yourself would be right for the show, or you just want to ask me some travel questions or say nice things, you can write me at TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. That's TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. And guess who reached out to me? Dom Jolie's people. I must admit that I didn't know Dom by name when uh, his publicist first reached out to me. But if I lived in the UK, or maybe if you live in the UK, there's a pretty good chance you know who he is. He's kind of a big deal. Dom is a British comedian and writer, and he's written a number of travel books. He's worked in television for many, many years. He's got a fascinating background in that he was uh, born and raised in Beirut, Lebanon, sent off to English boarding school at 12, finished university, ended up being a diplomat somehow. He's still amazed. He went from working at MTV at Britain to suddenly being a diplomat in the newly formed Czech Republic in the early 90s, which is a, a crazy story in itself, and we talk about that. He returned to the UK and somehow ended up in television, mostly in reality TV, in uh, hidden camera shows. He's done reality competition shows. He's done game shows. Some of them big shows over there in the UK, things like I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, where they plop down celebrities in... <laughs> strange circumstances, and uh, they get eliminated one by one. He did a survival competition show with Bear Grylls. If you know Bear Grylls, I mean, I knew Bear Grylls. He's big on TV. Dom has hosted a number of travel shows over in Britain, and he's written a handful of travel books that we talk about as well, including one called The Dark Tourist, in which he just vacations some of the world's most dangerous and scary and uh, kind of depressing places. He has another book called Scary Monsters and Super Creeps, where he became a monster hunter and went to places like the Congo to find uh, local monsters. And of course, up to Northern California, where he looked for Bigfoot and that kind of thing. His latest book is called The Conspiracy Tourist. And this fascinated me. He basically traveled around the world and met up with people and traveled with them in certain times who believe wholeheartedly in some of the most insane conspiracy theories. We're talking flat earthers. Bill Gates is putting uh, microchips and vaccines, you name it. So we get into that a bit as well. So Dom's a very interesting guy, and you're going to find that out in listening to this conversation. It's a long one because, man, I could have listened to him talk all day. 
And if you want to know uh, more about the ins and outs of Dom Jolie, you can, the easiest thing to do is to go to domjolie.tv. And that is Jolie with one L, just D-O-M-J-O-L-Y dot TV. And you can find out everything about him. That is, of course, after you listen to him here on the Travel Tales podcast. Please enjoy my conversation with Dom Jolie. So how did you, I mean, you came out of TV and did you, were you a stand-up or were you, I know you had a, like a, a sketch show or like a hidden camera show, didn't you? Uh, no. So I kind of, I did my life the wrong way around. So normally you start off doing stupid shit and then, can we swear on this? Yeah. Say yeah. anything you want. So I think normally you start off doing stupid shit and then you realize you've got bills to pay and you kind of get a bit dull. I actually started off quite serious. I, I was... Uh, I was a diplomat briefly, which still astounds me. Uh, I, was a, I worked in Parliament. I was a political correspondent. And I got fired from those jobs. And in the end, by a stroke of luck too long to tell you, ended up on a comedy show, which was kind of Britain's equivalent to Michael Moore, because I had political experience. And I thought I was doing a straight-up politics show. And on day one, we had to drive various things through McDonald's drive throughs like a tank, <laughs> a hot dog thing, a clown car. And I just remember thinking, holy shit. I mean, I would pay you to allow me to do this. And that was it. <laughs> I was hooked to comedy. And then, yeah, about three years later, I made a show called Trigger Happy TV. And I suppose if I had to sum it up, I think I made Hidden Camera cool because I always loved Hidden Camera. But bef- growing up, I loved it. But it was always a bit naff. It was a bit frat boy. It was a bit kind of mainstream. And it wasn't really respected in the comedy world. It was kind of like where thick people, stupid people went. And I was like, why? Why should it be? In America, it's always slightly different. Uh, Because essentially, shows like Trigger Happy TV are improv. But in England, improv has a terrible kind of feeling to it. It's a bit like you're all stuck pretending to be drama students, pretending you're trapped (laughs) in a lift. But in America, improv leads to great things like Spinal Tap, Kirby Enthusiasm, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I kind of, I had no, once I'd finished doing Trig Happy, which was massive and it sold to 80 countries, but it wasn't really what I wanted to do. Uh, because Trig Happy was so successful, it allowed me to start travel writing for newspapers. But I knew that if I was rubbish, they wouldn't keep me on, but they did keep <laughs> me on. And I kind of wrote about lots of stuff for ages. And then my breakthrough book was a book. I kind of didn't know what my travel thing was. Till I read an article about the site of the Jonestown Massacre in Guyana. Are you familiar with that? Oh, yeah. And, Reverend Jim uh, Jones. Exactly, yeah. And I was always slightly familiar with that story and fascinated by it. And I also had weirdly in my comedy life once rung up the Guyanan ambassador pretending to be a guy stuck in prison who just won the lottery. And when he got out, he wanted to go to lots of countries but he didn't want to waste his time in shit countries. So the premise was I rang all these ambassadors and got them to like pitch their country to me. And most of them did. But what I loved about the Guyanan guy, he just, he kind of, he didn't even try. He said, I'm honest with you, it's just snakes, swamps, and prisons. And so I kind of knew. (laughs) Yeah, so I read an article in The Guardian, which is quite a worthy newspaper. And it was an interview with the new Minister for Tourism in Guyana, a man who has a very difficult job. And he had realized that 
it was very difficult to lure people to Guyana. So his idea was to turn the site of the Jonestown massacre into a hotel for tourists. And the, oh, God. and the Guardian, you know, wrote about this like it's a terrible idea. And they said it's just terrible. It's part of this new trend of dark tourism. And I read it and thought, I'd actually like to go there. So, and that's what kicked me off. I realized that what I was was a dark tourist. So I wrote my first proper t- travel book called The Dark Tourist. And I went to North Korea. I went skiing in Iran. I went to Chernobyl for the weekend. Uh, I didn't go to Guyana, actually, in that one. You didn't go? I, I mean, I had to know if they had Kool-Aid. Tell me they didn't serve Kool-Aid. Well, unfortunately, because I, th- <laughs> because I read this article and then I did the book, by that stage, it was just an idea. So I thought, great. When they finally get it together, I'll go for the second book. But as far as I know, I don't think it ever happened sort of thing. But it was great for me because it was the first time I'd heard the term dark tourism. And although I obviously didn't coin it, it wasn't a big thing back then. And mainly dark tourism at the time was quite ghoulish. It was people visiting murder sites, uh, you know, maybe battlefields. And for me, I thought dark tourism fitted into what I did, which is, I like to visit places that I found politically interesting or something massive had happened historically. And I couldn't explain why. And I think after a bit, I realized it's because I think when you go somewhere where something extraordinary has happened, it almost feels like you can touch it. As an example, like, you know, people going to see where JFK was shot or, you know, assassination sites are interesting. We got to back it up for a minute there because you went through a whole lot there and there's a lot to unpack. First of all, let's start at diplomat. <laughs> and that's a that's a pretty big term that could encompass a lot of things. And was this right out of university? And what were your duties as a diplomat? And how in the hell did that happen? Uh, that's a very good question. <laughs> so just to back up further, I, again, for reasons too complicated to explain, uh, I come from a British family, but I grew up in Lebanon, in Beirut, um, but got sent off to a very posh boarding school in England. So my growing up was very schizophrenic between a civil war and kind of like this weird posh schooling. And I mm. suppose when you grow up in Lebanon, the people you kind of looked at as kind of you looked up to were more limited than normal places. So they were like foreign correspondents, diplomats, spies, and travel writers. So I think that was always in my head, the sort of thing I wanted to be. And because I grew up in Lebanon, I spoke three languages. So when I left university, I didn't know what I was going to do. And someone said, well, you can speak languages. You can apply for this internship program uh, that the European Union does. So I filled out this form, forgot about it, started working as a, a runner at MTV. And suddenly out of the blue, I get a phone call. I'm in the middle of making sandwiches at MTV. And this woman rings me up and says, congratulations, you've got the internship in Prague. Uh, when can you get here? And this was like six months after Czechoslovakia just split up. So I went down, resigned from being a runner. And my boss said, oh, have you got a better job? I said, yes, I'm off to be a diplomat. And that was it. And I drove out to Czechoslovakia and I had just the weirdest time for six months. I had no idea what I was doing. I had a funny feeling that they probably made a mistake and, and rung me instead of someone else. But I had a brilliant time. But I literally spent all six months with people coming to my office, asking me all sorts of stuff. And I would just say, I will refer that back to Brussels. And I'd just throw everything in a cupboard and hope 
nothing happened. <laughs> and six months later, my internship finished and I left. And I think they probably got a proper person in. And he rang me about a week later and said, I can't seem to find your files. And yeah, I was kind of found out, but it was interesting. <laughs> How long uh, did that last? Six months. So I managed to last the six months. My but God. looking, but this was way before Brexit. But I think I now realize that if you've got a job with the European Union, it was brilliant. But I did also realize that actually the European Union was just this massive bureaucracy and was kind of a bit troubled. Right. Well, according to um, Wikipedia, you and I, are, I think I'm a month older than you. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. 67? Yeah. October 14th is my birthday. No, yeah, you are. You're a month and a, yeah, 30 days. Perfect. Ah, oh, you young punk. Yeah, I feel young. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, I tell people that my, uh, you know, I've told this many times on here, but my first trip out of the country was six weeks after university in 89, the summer of 89, backpacking around uh, Europe, you know, with a URL pass and everything. And Did you uh, do interrailing sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. I got a URL pass and that thing. And uh, I went, you know, I stayed in West Berlin, uh, nice. which turned out to be the last summer of the Berlin Wall. <laughs> there Perfect. was no Euro. There was no, um, you know, and again, these countries, Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, there was a Soviet Union. None of these things exist anymore. Absolutely. And uh, I tell people now, it's like, you don't know when history will change, you know, and it changes pretty quickly. So what was it like? Uh, and I, I'm assuming it was around 90 or so you were in Czechoslovakia or 89? Yeah, so I I literally got to Czechoslovakia, you know, five months after the Velvet Revolution, and the European Union instantly kind of set up delegations there to try and help them become more, you know, Europeanized. And what was interesting about Czechoslovakia at the time was, you know, after a revolution, you know, the revolutionaries are in charge, but all the people that were the opposition in Czechoslovakia were intellectuals. So Václav Havel was a playwright. There were poets and stuff. And I was there for this very weird six months where for an odd sort of utopian six months, Frank Zappa and Lou Reed had been made honorary consuls. The foreign <laughs> minister was a poet. And there was one moment where I was sent for a meeting with the foreign minister and I was supposed to meet my boss there and just sit in on the meeting. But my boss was late and I was ushered in to meet the foreign minister. And I was like, holy shit, I don't know what I'm doing here. And I tried to bluff it, but after a bit, I started giggling nervously. <laughs> and the foreign minister said, you know, what's so funny? And I said, look, I'll come clean. I, I said, three months ago, I was making sandwiches at MTV in London. And now I'm supposedly a diplomat meeting the foreign minister. He goes, ah, don't worry about it. He said, four months ago, I was a poet. Now I'm the foreign minister. So it was like, it was this <laughs> totally weird kind of unreal kind of six months. And then suddenly, like, professional politicians came in and, everything changed. But I think the one amazing thing about it was normally when you travel, wherever you are, however amazing it is, there's always that annoying guy at the table next to you who just leans over and goes, just arrived? And you go, yeah. And he goes, uh, if only you'd been here three years ago or two years ago. There's always yeah. a guy saying, you've just missed it. <laughs> and the one thing about being in Czechoslovakia at that time, I thought, I am here at the right time. It was so brilliant and weird there was no advertising it was just so odd so yeah were it was you, an amazing thing were you positive 
of the way it was headed? Do you did you think it would last, or did you think it was like, man, this could go back the other way in a year again? Uh, that's a, a weird question. I think no, they were never going to go back to communism, but I could see that there was going to be trouble ahead after the initial kind of excitement that we're free, we can do whatever we want. You realize that there was a whole generation who'd been brought up under communism and and had no qualifications to live under a democracy. Like the you know people fourteen, sixteen were going to thrive, but there was going to be a whole generation who. Whatever you think about communism, they were given free housing, they were looked after, medical, and suddenly they were like sort of thrown on the scrap heap. Uh, so yeah, I was aware of that, but no, overall it was an amazing thing. Yeah, that was interesting to me, you know, being brought up in the you know in America when we were taught from day one that you know communism was the was the ultimate <laughs> evil of everything, and then I went there and, and and after you know all these revolutions and and the world changed. Especially in places like, uh, yeah, and like in the Czech Republic and in in Croatia, particularly when I went there and in Yugoslavia or the former Yugoslavia, to find these older people who would uh, they really missed <laughs> the old days. They missed communism. It's like, look, we didn't have to worry about, you know. Well, I think ta- it was all I- taken care of, and yeah, we had less choice of things, but we also didn't worry about these new things that were yeah. All because again. About. Again, it's kind of like however bad things are, the one thing you really want is stability. Yeah. And however terrible totalitarian regimes are, whatever, they tend to be stable. And I think when you get to an age where suddenly, like, you're just, it's a brave new world. If you're 16, that's incredibly exciting. But if you're 60, you're suddenly like, well, what? I mean, now what? I think the big thing. They don't like any change. They don't like any change to begin with. But also, they'd kind of done the right thing, you know, they, and, and suddenly they were being. It was it was very tricky, but I think the big thing I learned was probably like you. I grew up just being told that we were the good guys, and you know the the communist countries were the bad guys, which probably technically they still were. But then you met all these people, and you realised that they were lovely people that you liked, and they'd grown up being told exactly the same thing about us, and that was kind of a weird thing. Like you realised how. Yeah. Well, you know, even facts like when you travel, you look at maps. I'm just used to Britain being in the center of any map I look at. But, of course, if you travel, you realize wherever you are, that is the center of any map. (laughs) And it's such a simple thing, but you don't think about it. Exactly. Well, I mean, having been uh, brought up in in Lebanon and, uh, you know, the 70s, you know, we heard about Lebanon and Beirut. Beirut was always on my TV in the news. Um, yeah, so that seventies and eighties. So um, that must have affected you. I mean, that, that was a massive. That was a massive driving force for my travel. I think because, firstly, I kind of knew that half of Lebanon. You know, it used to be called the Paris of the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, people either think of Lebanon as a war zone or a desert. It actually looks like a cross between California and the south of France. I could ski in and out of my house, go to the beach. It's the best food in the world. But just as I got to the age where I'd enjoy it, it became this hideous civil war. But you still coped. Like, you could still have a good life there. And I think, firstly, just the adrenaline of living somewhere like that, where you're constantly living in a sort of fight or flight moment, meant almost anywhere else was a bit dull. And so Mm -hmm. when I started writing The Dark Tourist, I thought, I wonder if other places in the world that I've always assumed 
were just awful war zones were kind of the same. And the great example was Cambodia. Like if if Lebanon had a rival in the 70s, it was Pol Pot's yeah. Cambodia. It was similar. It was a French colony. And of course, I went there and there were so many similarities there. It's an extraordinary place. Yeah, Cambodia was there. I didn't make it to the, I mean, I went to Angkor Wat, but I did not make it to the capital or the uh, killing fields. And uh, you had mentioned dark tourism before, and I hope it recorded. <laughs> but um, I have done these kind of things, and people always question me. I've been to the Hanoi, Hil- Hit, the Hanoi Hilton prison. I've been to Auschwitz. I've been to the, the Terror Museum in, in Hungary. I've been to these things because I think they're uh, important to see. You know, I've been to the, uh, the Genocide Museum in, in Rwanda. Um, you know, they're important. But they are, uh, they are I'm important. not fascinated by it. But are some people, have, did you run into people who are really obsessed with these dark things? Yes. I think there are certain people that are almost ghoulish. They kind of get off yeah. on. I'd almost call them atrocity tourists and stuff. But as a dark tourist, you know, if you're in any way interested in history or politics, it's fascinating to go to places that have either affected you in your life or you've read about. And as I said, it's a sort of way of almost touching history. If you go to a place where something extraordinary has happened, there is this weird sensation that you're almost, it's the closest you'll get to being part of that event. And people that kind of criticize the uh, dark tourism are the same sort of people that would see nothing weird in going on, you know, religious pilgrimages to where people were crucified or even visiting, you know, retirees visiting Gettysburg or something like that. It's the same thing. I just think possibly some people think, you know, there's a sort of cutoff like a hundred years ago, then it's okay. But any more recent, it's not okay. And I think it's how you approach it. I didn't go to those places and kind of laugh at them or whatever. I went there because I was truly fascinated in it. But all travel is inherently funny. So it's about the balance and how you write about it. Did you, you had a book on a, a, a pilgrimage that you took, did you not? Uh, not a book. I did a TV show, a TV which the show, BBC right. does. Yeah. Uh, where was where that? They, well, when they started, the BBC did it on a couple of very famous pilgrimages. By the time they asked me to be on it, I think they'd run out. There was a very tenuous pilgrimage route called the Sultan's Trail from Belgrade to Istanbul, which if we had done the whole thing, would have taken about four months. And television is always in a rush. So my pilgrimage show was actually being driven very fast in a minibus and dropped off in various places and told to walk the same bit over and over again and then look like I'm interested while drones flew over. And that's the problem with travel TV as opposed to writing. And I started in television but that's why I do my travel stuff as a writer, because it's almost impossible to make authentic travel TV. Right. Did um, Was there a moment that you recall? Was there a last straw moment that maybe your father said, that's it, we're leaving Lebanon, it's untenable, we can't stay? Uh, no, because we never left. I mean, my uh Oh, they're still there? Sister, well, yeah, when did you sister- go to... They sent you to school in England? Was that the deal? Yeah. So they, I mean, the schools were not happening. So they sent me off to a school, boarding school in England. Right. But in the the holidays, I'd go back uh, to Lebanon. So I firstly had incredibly interesting, you know, what did you do in your holiday essay answers? (laughs) Because most 
most people were like, you know, I went to camp or I went to pony club and I was like, well, I spent quite a lot of time in a bomb shelter and stuff, which was good. But, um, yes. Yeah, so no, and also I had a very schizophrenic upbringing because in Lebanon, I was always this English kid, but at these schools in England, I was always this weird kid that lived in a war zone and I kind of milked it a bit because it made me look really cool and tough that I lived in a war zone. But actually the reality was there were very frightening moments, but also Lebanon was an extraordinarily brilliant place to live. So, Do you go back often or has it been a while? No, no, 100%. I go back, uh, when did I last go back? Six months ago I went back. Yeah, I go back probably two, three times a year. How is their tourism industry? Is there one and can I get there? And what, uh, what does it take for so, me to get there? So firstly, their tourism used to be massive, but it was a bit cliched. It's like you went to Beirut, you saw the sites in Beirut, you went to a town called Byblos, which is technically the oldest still lived in town in the world. Then you went to the Roman ruins of Baalbek. It was like a set tour. But then, of course, with the war and people getting wary of it, tourism was very difficult. And so my last travel book for this one I wrote was called The Downhill Hiking Club. And in it, I found these Lebanese had set up a thing called the Lebanon Mountain, Mountain Trail, because Lebanon is stunningly beautiful. And if you do the whole thing, which I did, you walk the length of Lebanon from the Israeli border in the south to the Syrian border in the north, and every night you stay in local houses, and it's the most incredible thing I ever did. So I wrote a book about that, but with that one, normally I go on my own, with that one I took two friends because I wanted to persuade people that they should think about going to Lebanon. Because I think people just think of Lebanon and think it's incredibly dangerous. And it's just not. It really isn't. It's the most incredible place to go. So, yeah, I've done my bit for the Lebanese I... Tourist Board. <laughs> well, I've been, the closest I got was uh, Israel and Jordan, you know, going to Petra and things. But is, uh, is it one of those situations that uh, we hear about that if you have uh, an Israeli stamp on your passport, you can't? get in or is it difficult yes yeah it's absolutely that so normally if you ask israel will stamp a sort of a piece of paper stapled to it i have two british passports uh if you apply for two and say you need it because you travel to politically incompatible countries you get it <laughs> the only nightmare with that is you have to be very organized and make sure you take the right one and i once flew to dallas and i took the wrong uh, passport. So it had an Iranian visa, a North Korean visa, a Libyan oh, visa. Boy. And there was a <laughs> massive guy in the immigration. And this was pretty close to 9-11. And he flipped through, he saw the Iranian visa. And I could see him looking at me. And I could see just a tiny glimmer. He thought, I've got one. And he said, sir, what was your reason for visiting Iran? And I knew I should <laughs> explain, but I couldn't resist. So I said, I went there to ski. And even in his tiny brain, you can see him going, I've got him. He goes, sir, Iran is a desert country. There ain't no skiing. And it took me like nine hours to get out of there. So immigration people don't <laughs> like interesting travel. No, but in answer to your, no, in answer friend, to your question, in yes, in answer <laughs> to your question, you won't be allowed into Lebanon if you have an Israeli stamp. But it's most countries just allow you to have a, you know, another passport. So it's pretty easy. Okay. Um, in terms also, of, Lebanon uh, is very different to Israel and Jordan because they're much more kind of what you'd think the Middle East is, especially Jordan, you know, desert, camels, stuff like that. Whereas Lebanon is just a unique place. It genuinely, 
looks like California. It's pine forests and beautiful snow-capped mountains and the Mediterranean Sea. It's incredible. Well, it sounds great. And I'm not going to get in the uh, hummus debate with no, you. No, don't bother. Because... <laughs> although, <laughs> although what you should get into is the hummus debate, not the hummus, because hummus. actually... Okay, so, uh, um, until re- That's what I meant. Until- That's what I did. It sound like Hamas. I didn't mean. Hamas. Yeah, sorry. I, I thought mean- you meant Hamas. Yeah. Because oh no, actually, no, re- no. I meant uh, you, you I meant, meant the hummus, chickpeas. the edible. Yes, because actually, <laughs> yes, I joked in my first book that that actually genuinely was the biggest source of conflict in Israel and Lebanon because both claimed to have invented hummus. And uh, yes, that's yeah, what that, I meant. That's, that's what I meant by the great debate. And having been to both, they're both brilliant, but they're very different. Like Israel prefers a sort of slightly almost warm hummus and stuff, whereas Lebanon makes a very creamy one. So I think they're both winners in that, in that, in that one. Oh, uh, the, yes, they're delicious. But uh, I've, I've known both Lebanese and Israelis, and uh, each one claims to have the better hummus. Of course. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm not stepping into the middle of that, uh, that fight. And, and, and I'm not even going to bring up the other fight. <laughs> so well, that, yeah. That's a different well, podcast actually, for some. Actually, you'd be surprised by my views on that because I'm very complicated. Because although I grew up in Lebanon, one of my earliest memories was we were about to be. I lived in the Christian Maronite area of Lebanon, and I remember the Christians were about to lose to the West Beirut Muslim side. And I remember the last minute Israel came in, invaded Lebanon, and technically saved us. So I've got pictures of me as a kind of 12 year old, you know, getting my picture taken with Israeli tanks. And then this is how complicated the Middle East is. About four years later, exactly the same thing happened. And this time the Syrians invaded and saved us. So it's kind of like, it, you know, who's your enemy, who's your friend changes every week there. It's very complicated. Looking down the road, uh, not just Lebanon or Israel or anything, where do you see the, the Middle East, you know, you get Saudi Arabia, you know, sports washing and doing all that and, and throwing their weight around now. And, and where do you see it 10, 20 years from now? I mean, how do you, are you positive at all? Is there any positivity happening? I, I th- yes, I think I, I am positive because in the end, people, ha- I mean, there's an in- incredible tendency for people in the Middle East to look at history and remember things that happened to them 200 years ago. And it's like, there has to be a moment where everyone just goes, okay, we've all done terrible things but let's kind of somehow move on. And for a long time, places like Saudi Arabia, which obviously have terrible human rights records and are not, you know, brilliant regimes, but they now, I think, so want to be westernized and want to modernize that even though I think that whole sports washing is pretty disgusting, the positive side of it, it means that they, I mean, literally one of the reasons with the current conflict was I think Hamas were worried that Saudi Arabia was literally about to sign a a sort of peace deal with Israel, which was, you know, 10 years ago would have been unheard of. So I think in the end, something will happen, I hope. But it's it's very tricky. Mm -hmm. You need to get rid of the extremists on both sides. Yeah. Well, let's get back to the, uh, I love the story about the, um, the agent in Dallas questioning you. Tell me some of your other uh, good stories about uh, run-ins with border police or or any kind of police or soldiers at checkpoints or whatever. What's some of the scariest things? Uh, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's very strange. I mean, Israel for it's, is interesting because there was a moment where I was banned from going both to Libya and Israel. And I thought, well, come on, make your mind up. Like, I'm either on one side or the other. 
And I went to Israel because I was invited to give a talk there. And I was taken because they saw my passport, born in Beirut. So I was taken aside and stuff. And again, they found out I went to Iran. And I said I went skiing there. And I was very clear about why because I was a travel writer. And to prove it, I opened my laptop and started showing the Israeli immigration guy photographs of me skiing in Iran. And it was quite funny because you could see he was still trying to be stern and officious. But there was also a part of him that had probably never seen photographs of like normal life in Iran because it's such a bogeyman. And so it's kind of interesting where he's pretending not to be interested, but he was. So border guards are very odd. My weirdest one was North Korea. When you arrive in North Korea, they confiscate everything off you apart from uh, your camera. And you're only allowed to take and they put everything in a package. They wrap it up and they give it to you when you leave the country. You're allowed to keep your camera, but you can only take pictures of things you've asked permission to take pictures of, which obviously I kind of ignored. And by the time I was about to leave, I realized I had a lot of nothing sensitive, but just, you know, for them, things they could cause trouble with. And we were leaving on a train into China and we were nearly at the border. And I thought, great, it'll be fine. And suddenly guy rushed into the carriage and said, oh, my God, there's a North Korean guard coming down and he's checking all the photographs on our cameras. And I thought, fuck, what do I do? So I, I, I just acted instinctively. I, I flipped out the memory disk thing and basically shoved it up my ass, uh, which was probably, I didn't know if it would work or not, but I thought it did. I put another <laughs> disc in and I was drinking a very nice bottle of North Korean beer. So I took about 300 pictures of this beer bottle and suddenly the guard comes in, he asks for our cameras, I hand it over and he starts flicking through my pictures and he gets to about the hundredth picture of the same beer bottle. And even though he was North Korean, I could see him look at me going, buddy, I think you got a problem here. And he just handed it back and I got away with it. So I did get my pictures out. So it was fine. <laughs> oh my God. And it still worked after being up your ass. The, the uh, they did, yes. Out. And no weird filter or anything. It was fine. <laughs> was the... Uh, reason for going to North Korea? Was that for television? No, this was again as part of my first book, you know, The Dark Tourist. Uh, and basically it was the, the idea was to go on yeah, holiday yeah. to places where, you know, no one would normally go on holiday. And actually I didn't think you could get into North Korea, but I was writing for a new, so I was writing I, for a newspaper at the time and I was covering the Beijing Olympics. And I met a guy in Beijing who ran the only travel agency that was allowed to take in organized groups into North Korea. And you could only go in kind of under incredibly strict. It was like a the world's strictest, you know, coach trip. And the irony, of course, is the only people who wanted to go to yeah. North Korea were hardened independent travelers who whose idea of hell was a coach trip. So you had all these people who normally were so used to independent travel <laughs> stuck on a coach trip. But North Korea is so weird. Like your first day there we spent the morning at the Museum of Agricultural Lathes and Sides, which was as boring as it sounded, but it was so boring, it was almost what you wanted from North Korea. It was like so insanely odd. It was fantastic. So the whole place was almost like, it, it was like stepping, I can describe North Korea as like when you look at a Bond film and the baddies are always in kind of very cold rooms with no carpets and the colours being taken out of the palette. It was like that. Uh, it, it, it's, it, it's, I think it's the last place in the world 
that is truly cut off. There's no internet. There's nothing. It is so strange. And, you know, no advertising, no... Nothing except for insane advertising about the dear leader. You know, it's like Cult City. Every person wears a little badge. And there are lots of weird rules. Like if you take a picture of a poster of, you know, one of the leaders, you can't just take half the body. You have to take the whole body. I mean, it's, it's a total totalitarian cult. <laughs> oh, wow. So it's such a weird thing to write about because it's inherently funny and absurd, but you're also very aware that you're a tourist. You're going there and you can leave. If you live under that, it's terrifying and awful. So you have to kind of, you have to strike a weird balance when you're writing about it because I, I refuse to just not write about the funny things that happen there, but you have to be sensitive of what a awful place it is as well. I assume they didn't um, let you talk to the people. Uh, so that's what's interesting. It's like uh, there were definitely times when you were introduced to someone, obviously because we didn't speak North Korean. The only people that spoke English were clearly people that were kind of part of the regime, and they were almost brought to you like kind of, mm. you know, like sort of uh, like actors. And that was sort of funny in itself. But the weird thing was, anywhere else I've been under a sort of terrible regime, when you occasionally manage to get away from the guides, people come up to you and want to talk to you. North Korea wasn't like that. They were so deep in the cult, and they had so little news of the outside world that it, it just they all believed it. You know, it wasn't like, come on, he's gone, you could tell us. I mean, there are obviously distance there, but it's the most controlled place I've ever been. It was incredibly creepy. Yeah, I can imagine. In terms, and then we'll get off the dark tourism for a little bit. But I just wanted to ask if there was somewhere that, even though uh, interesting as it may have been, did you get there and go and boy, I regret coming here. This one really was. Uh, well, two places. I mean, firstly Nigeria, because I wasn't that interested in going there. And by the time I'd left the airport, I think I'd been. So forced bribe. I've, I've been sort of, you know, forced to pay bribes. About ten. It's the most corrupt place I've ever been with no upside. It wasn't like, okay, I'll deal with that because mm-hmm. it's something I wanted to go to. The Congo I went to is probably the place where mostly, even in supposedly dangerous places, I don't feel afraid because one of the ironies of totalitarian countries is they're quite safe. And as a visitor, you're normally safe. Congo was the exception. There are two Congos, of course. I call them bad and good Congo. Bad Congo is the big one. It used to be Zaire, Cattle, Kinshasa, and that's just mental. Good Congo, which is the sort of uh, the French one, much smaller on the other side, Cattle, Brazzaville, is technically safer than bad Congo, but it's still pretty lawless. And I went to the far north. I was doing a book about monster hunting, and I don't think I've ever felt Normally, I can sort of read a situation and gauge where I am. I just, I was so out of control there. I just thought, I've completely out of my depth here. So, yeah, but it was exciting because that's the joy of travel writing is you think if I get out of this, oh, it's going to be a good chapter. Well, my gosh, the, uh, the tell me about the monsters and what, when did this come about? That was, uh, how many so books my, is that? So my, so my first book was The Dark Tourist. And my second book, because I kind of grew up with a love of Tintin, and I was obsessed with Tintin as a kid, and I kind of wanted to go to all the places where Tintin went to. And my favorite Tintin book is Tintin in Tibet, where he 
happens to bump into the Yeti. And I'd always been kind of obsessed with those weird monsters. Mm -hmm. And so my next book was called Scary Monsters. And I basically went around the world knowing I wouldn't find these monsters and almost mostly thinking they weren't real. But there was a tiny part of me hoping that there was something there. But it was more about the sort of people that were obsessed with it. So I went to Northern California to hunt for Bigfoot. I went to the Himalayas to look at the Yeti. Uh, I went to Japan to this weird monster called the Hebagon. Canada had one called Ogopogo. And Congo, there's a very strange round lake in Northern Congo where there's a monster called the Makalian Bembe, which means blocker of rivers. So that's what I was doing in the Congo, going there. I felt it was, it was, it was the only time I genuinely felt like a proper almost like a Victorian adventurer, you know, three days canoe ride down. There's no cell coverage. You are genuinely out there. And it was exciting. Well, how big of a crew did you have? Oh, no crew. Was you, was you just, no you crew, just me or my own. Local? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And not even a... Uh, an, uh, a local yes, fixer, so I got a, a fi- guide or a not a bodyguard. No, I got a local fixer before the canoe ride. But <laughs> about a day into the canoe ride, I realized that I knew more about the Congo than him, and I'd only been there two days. So, oh. yeah, no, it, there were no rules there. It was fantastic. <laughs> oh my gosh! And I'm assuming Loch Ness was. The- yeah, I mean it's terrible. In all my travel books, I always, in the end, do one chapter in Britain, but it's just that weird thing that, because I love travel so much, if I was American, I'd be so excited to visit Loch Ness, but I just, I find it very difficult to get myself excited about traveling in your own country. It's an odd thing. So, yeah. yeah, no, I, I'm with And you. that's bad for you, because America is endlessly exciting. You know, because I've been to America, I've been to America Huge, 50 times, and yeah, every but time. But I've been to all 50 states. But no, not, probably 30 times. And every time it's like going to a different country. It's amazing. Wow. <laughs> well, it is vast. And I forget yeah. how big it is, um, you know, living here and, and doing the road and uh, all those years uh, performing and, and traveling just. But Europeans, yeah, so Europeans can be very states, snobby so. about Americans. You know, it's <laughs> like, oh, my God, you know, most Americans don't have a passport and stuff. Of course. And there's, there's a sort of truth to some of that. But on the other hand, once you realize what America's like, you think you could travel your whole life, not leave America, and still you've got everything. Like So, you know, if you live in England, for any real experience, we've got to travel. So it's very different for you guys. So I'm, I'm, I'm a lot less snobby about it. And I certainly think when it comes to road trips, America <laughs> literally was born for road trips. Like It's the greatest place on earth for a road trip. And I did one in my new book, which was one of my favorites. It was amazing. <laughs> Yeah, well, let's talk about that now, because it, this just uh, was released, right? It was, and it is a, officially a number one bestseller. I'm very excited, and it's just been made Book of the Year by Blackwells today, so I'm very wow. excited by it. It's doing very well. Thank you. Congratulations. I'm talking to a Not genuine a celebrity. celebrity. Like, as someone that's finally... I've, 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 it's very difficult <laughs> to change from being a successful comedian to try and do something else. I thought, it, you know, why not? I've done that. And actually, I realized people don't like you changing lanes. So I've really tried to pay my dues with my travel writing. And I think probably because, firstly, I have done that and people start to like my writing. But also the subject of this book is probably a little more zeitgeisty than my other ones, you know, because it's about conspiracies. And 
conspiracies are very much like a thing at right. the moment, you know, becoming more and more part of our lives, sadly. Now it's called the conspiracy tourist. Is, is that what it is? That's right. Yeah. This yeah. fascinates me because this is something, look, conspiracy theories were always out there for, you know, as far as yes, but they, but they, but used, they, but they never, used, they used to be fun, you know, like, yes. And you could brush the people. They used to be like, is off, that, like, uh, you know, okay, whatever, <laughs> you know. But also they were, they were harmless. Like, you know, is Elvis still alive? Did we land on the moon? Bigfoot? It didn't really matter. It was fun and it was interesting and weird. Suddenly, around the time Trump came in, I think actually it was the moment Kellyanne Conway used the term alternative facts. Suddenly truth became like a, a weird thing. It was your truth, my truth. And suddenly conspiracies went from being the you know the, the very odd for odd people to being mainstream you had the president of the united states going on about it and it became quite dangerous and during lockdown i'd spend a lot of time arguing with them online and they made me angry but i started to think do these people actually believe it or are they doing it for clicks so the purpose of the book was to travel the world and meet conspiracists and look them in the eye and think you really you really believe this stuff and yeah they do it's very odd uh, I've had a few run-ins with something like this. I remember a few years ago, uh, I was walking, I was doing a beach cleanup here in Venice Beach, and there was a guy with a really high-powered telescope aimed at the water. Oh, I know. And, uh, Flat earther, yeah, trying to find that, the well, curve. Well, what happened was, I was asking what he was doing, and he said, and this is an older guy, and he said, uh, my nephew thinks the earth is flat. And so I'm out here, like, showing him the curvature of the earth, basically. And um, and I was just, I shook my head. I was going, wow. Because it was a hot day, and he's out there all day recording this stuff. And I went, but all, uh, how, just by... But also, he, he, ignored, he, he ignored the number one rule that I've discovered with conspiracists, is that it's pointless arguing with them, because yeah. it, whatever you say or prove... They just always, you know, return to, well, you're in on it. You're part of it. You would say that. Uh, more interesting questions with flat earthers is things like, well, if the, let's just say the earth is flat and Australians are holograms, which is what they believe. What, <laughs> let's say, Na and, and NASA and these people are trying to persuade us that the earth is round. What's in it for them? Why are they? I mean, if the earth's flat, I mean, why are they so concerned on selling us this supposed lie? that the earth is round. It just doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, so the whole thing's very odd. But my favorite thing is that flat earthers, their insult for, I presume you believe the earth is round as I do, we are globetards. <laughs> I love that name. <laughs> well, when I met that guy, I, you know, and I said, well, good luck to you, sir. <laughs> and I'm sorry about your nephew. And then I walked away and I said, bye. bye. I mean, just uh, out of curiosity, how old is your nephew? And he said, 25. I thought it would be 10. You know, or some eight-year-old no. boy or something. No, he's a grown adult. And that's when I went, wow, things have... Uh, but actually, that's one of the things I discovered doing this book. Firstly, I kind of assume they're all idiots. And actually, when you meet them, they're not stupid. These are, if anything, are people that think too much about stuff but come to the wrong conclusions. But the real culprit is social media and the algorithms. I yeah. set up a fake in Instagram account as, as a conspiracist and followed the usual suspects. And the algorithm immediately starts sending you this stuff. And if you looked at the difference between my actual Instagram page and my fake one, 
we could be living in totally different universes. So I can see very easily how people start to go down these rabbit holes and get these kind of caught were up in it. always said by people, but it was usually by your taxi driver or <laughs> some guy who sidled up next to you at a bar somewhere, and you could always leave after a while, like, okay, and just shake it off and just be like, wow, and tell your friends I talked to some nut job today. And that yeah, was it. Yeah, it used to be that amusing. Yes. Yeah. And now in, that guy... In my book, my favorite... Yeah, it's connected. In my book, my favorite quote is, uh, every village ha always had an idiot, but unfortunately they can now all contact each other. And that's what's happened, basically. Yes. You know, and, then, and, and once they... Once they contact each other, their views are validated, but also it becomes their social life. It becomes your tribe, and it's very difficult to leave it. You know, it yes, becomes your exactly identity. exactly where I was getting, because in, in a human-to-human -human contact, eventually that guy would realize that uh, people are moving away from him. They're uh, checking out of the conversations. They're not inviting him to parties anymore. <laughs> and then maybe something in his brain going, maybe I should rethink this. Maybe, I'm, uh, maybe I should tone that back a little bit. But like you said, they would now they can just go online and find strength in numbers, and pretty soon it's uh, it's all validated and it's it's dangerous and and if they hundred percent, but also if they weren't getting elected to office, um, we could pass it off again. You but see, that's it's, it's that's frightening. You see that that that's the craziness because uh, you know conspiracy conspiracies often happen, conspiracy theories happen the most when things, you know, when there's something like a pandemic or, you know, there's like crisis going on and the world yeah. is sort of chaotic. And as humans, you know, basically my travels, I just learned shit happens, random stuff happens. Yeah. But as humans, we hate that. We don't like chaos. We want order. And conspiracies are a really nice way of trying to put order onto chaos. You know, if you think, okay, it's not my fault or it's not, I'm not unlucky. There's there's some guy behind it all and there's a reason for it. And not only that, but it also, if you're feeling a bit powerless and lost, it kind of gives you this feeling that you have secret knowledge, you've understood it. So I get the whole thing behind it. But in the old days, conspiracies were clearly seen by most people as like, as sort of just very weird, cranky stuff. And now 50% of the fucking country see it as their truth. And the other 50% see it as not truth. And the point is, you can't even argue it anymore. People just go with their truth. And that's the real and danger. Also, right I, out of university, I was a uh, newspaper writer. You know, I wrote mostly sports, but uh, a lot of things. And um, even a small newspaper I worked at in, in the early 90s, I had a, uh, a fact checker, an editor. Uh, and this was just a village little <laughs> little paper. Um, of course. And the internet does not have that. And so there are no guardians. Well, the internet, weirdly, the internet kind of does have that more than newspapers because in the old days, yes, you had, you know, the whole, you had to, everything had to be verified and it was journalistic. And then because in America, you went a bit from news to almost opinion. Yeah. So you had Fox News and CNN and basically people just regurgitated better ratings. whatever their audience. Yeah, of course. And it was, you know, the more extreme they got, the better. The weird thing is on the internet, things like Snopes and those things started to pop up where you could actually check facts. And for a brief moment, that was quite good. But now, even those things, conspiracists go, oh, well, those are all run by Bill Gates or whatever. You know, right. No one believes anything from the other side anymore. There is no truth anymore. So, and that's the real frightening thing. It's like we live in two different worlds now. So what are the, some of the places 
you go in the book? What uh, and some that really stand out in your mind? So I thought I'd kick off with the weirdest conspiracy theory I could find, and I found one that claimed that Finland, the country, didn't exist. <laughs> so I took my I took my poor wife on a five day holiday to Finland in an attempt to prove it existed. And actually, it was more a intellectual exercise because if you've got your conspiracy head on. You can't prove summer exists. I landed in Finland. They were speaking Finnish. The guy stamped my passport. I said, where am I? He said, Finland. He looked a bit worried. And I said, but can you prove it? And he just said, no. And then he said, but look at your map. It'll tell you. And then, of course, if I'm a conspiracy theorist, I go, yeah, but who built the map? And you realize once you go down that, you, 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 you have an out clause for everything sort of thing. So that was particularly odd and quite depressing because it made me realize that it was almost impossible to argue with conspiracies. Mm. And also, if you do argue with them, you're never going to win. If anything, they retreat into their bunker and become more firm in their belief. So it's a very odd thing. But I think my favorite thing in the book... Yes, exactly the same thing. You're not going to change someone. It becomes Mm. your life. But my favorite thing in the book, and the real reason I wrote the book, was because I thought flat-earthing was so weird. I wanted to meet someone who believed the earth was flat. And I wanted to look him in the eyes and say, you honestly believe the earth is flat? And they said, yes. And I did, but it got even stranger because there's not only normal (laughs) mainstream flat earth, which is kind of a bit Truman show. The earth is round, flat. Australia's a hologram. There's a kind of ice wall at the edges, (laughs) but there's a splinter group who are square flat earthers and they believe the earth is square and flat. And therefore, if it's square and flat, there are four corners of the square flat earth. And one of those corners is an island called Fogo off Newfoundland. So I end, I end the book by going to Newfoundland, finding a square flat earther and going on a road trip with him to the edge of the earth. And I won't ruin the book, but it didn't go well. <laughs> was, there, was there ever a point where you're asking these questions and of course they're going to get extremely defensive, but they could also get angry. Uh, you're questioning their whole belief system. Yes, uh, but it, did, did but it ever it, get? It, it, it doesn't. It, it doesn't. It doesn't even get to that because we've got to the stage now where they're like, you know, you believe your thing, I believe mine, and there's almost no point discussing it. The only time they get angry is if they think they go more conspiracy and they think that somehow you're working for Bill Gates or George Soros or the usual suspects, and you've been sent yeah. to kind of undermine them, which is sort of so confusing, the whole thing. I mean, if I'm honest, the the worst thing of the whole taking a flat earther on a road trip was that the guy was a big fan of the band Rush and insisted <laughs> on playing Rush all the way. And I'm sorry, even though my wife's Canadian, I loathe Rush. So that was uh, actually the flat earth bit. When, when we turned the music off and discussed flat earth theory, that was infinitely preferable. <laughs> Can I tell you my first concert? Was it Rush? <laughs> it was. It was. Jesus, I just don't it's get hilarious. it. Hilarious. I mean, you know, I know. Oh, it's I know a, Neil it's a, it's an acquired a great taste. I get me. that. Believe it's me. not it's, an acquired taste. Trust me, I will never. Kind of a nerd it's, band. it's a taste I, I never want to acquire. And I am. They're not sort of surprised. nerdy. They're a bit prog rocky, yeah. and also oh, they yeah. break the cardinal rule, which is never trust a band where the bassist where uh, has the bass under his armpit. It's just a no no straight away. <laughs> It's uh yeah I mean they were always a uh, an acquired taste and but I was a kid yeah I mean our generation had rush our, if you were if you were you know your age but if you were twelve now instead of rush you'd be into Minecraft or Fortnite of it was a kind of nerdy band 
Yeah. Yes. We it was a bit actually weirdly like being a flat earther. <laughs> weirdly, there is a rhyme to it because there are flat earthers that almost flat earth is such a uh, such a ridiculous concept. I think they almost revel in being as almost as 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 extreme anti-science as possible. It's almost like it's almost like what's the most ridiculous thing that we can espouse to argue with mainstream science? And in a sense, I feel Rush was a bit like, what's the most unlistenable to music that we can make as opposed <laughs> many, to stuff people like? How many, <laughs> I'm joking. How many I mean, time I'm sorry for Rush fans. How many there, time but. signature changes can we put in one? Exactly. Song? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but don't you think some of this, and I've always thought that a little bit of this was uh, – the, the conspiracy theories is a is a way for people who didn't feel smart growing up to feel smart. You know what I mean? It's like now yes, I know well, I was, something you don't. Hundred percent. And I, I I struggled all through the book to try and find the perfect phrase to express that, and I still nailed it. But my best attempt was conspiracy theories are the way non complex people make sense of a complex world, because yeah, essentially there's lots of quotes about how. You know, uh, history is much more a product of chaos rather than conspiracy. And these are people that always think that somehow there's this elite running the thing. And I'm lucky enough or unlucky enough to have hung out with some very powerful people in my weird pasts. And, you know, I've met people in government and stuff like that. And my takeaway is these people are fucking idiots, mainly. They can't even <laughs> organize a they can't organize a parking system. So the idea that they somehow have this incredibly like complex global organization is just laughable. Right. I, I mean, but then maybe I've been paid to say that, you see. So there you go. <laughs> you know who doesn't think that the governments are running everything? People who work in the government because they see how exactly. dysfunctional it is. <laughs> and they're like, we can't even get the simplest thing done. We don't. You know, Which is why they end up just becoming corrupt and thinking, I'm not going to get anything done. Let's just get some fucking yes. bribe money and get out of here. That's I a, it. Yeah. I, I knew a guy who. Uh, worked for the FBI and all these conspiracies about the FBI, the, how they're spying on this and they're watching us uh, through this and listening to the phone calls and stuff. And they go, man, we don't even have enough guy. We don't have enough manpower to even catch the bad guys. You know what I mean? It's like, we're not listening to your that, dumb conversations. That, <laughs> honestly, you're so bang on. There was this, when people were like going against the vaccine because there was a rumor that the vaccine, they were putting a micro, Bill Gates, or oh you know, he's God. often yeah. blamed. Uh, Bill Gates was apparently injecting little microchips into us so that he could, <laughs> you know, read our minds. And I just kept saying, listen, Sharon from Peterborough, yeah. like the arrogance of thinking anyone gives a fuck what is going on in your mind. Like, it's just that no one's interested. I'm sorry to tell you, you know. I don't mind. If someone wants to read my mind, they're going to be fucking bored after a bit. And do you think if uh, if a crisis like the pandemic and anything taught us anything, it's usually, and I, I tell people this, it's like the government really doesn't give a shit about you. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes, and I agree. They, and, they don't. And, and I hate I hate to make a serious point, but actually if there is a serious point in this book, which I tried hard not to make a serious point, but it's the fact that nobody, I'm not denying that conspiracy conspiratorial behavior happens. I'm not denying that governments haven't kept secrets and lied. I'm not denying that corporations haven't behaved terribly. It's just what seems the real shame with this is that the people that actually think, yeah, we need to keep people to account and they, they, you know, they don't trust anyone constantly end up 
going after the wrong targets. I mean, we're at a situation right now where doctors have become the enemy. Now, obviously, yeah. there are a couple of rogue doctors. There are a couple of terrible people and being teachers. paid shit by, you know, and teachers. And you're just like constantly, it almost in, in, that's the conspiracy. It's incredible how almost invariably they end up targeting completely the wrong people and the actual people you should be targeting get away with it totally. The idea they all go on about, oh, the elites are running us, but the elites, and they keep get, voting for people like Donald Trump, who literally couldn't yeah. design a, a, a more bigger example of the elite. So it's, it's just depressing, yeah, the whole yeah. thing. His, he literally trademarked his name as an elite brand name for 40 years. It's insane. <laughs> but he's not an elitist. He's I, not, mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, ironically, I loathe Donald Trump more than anyone. But actually, when he first started to run, whatever I thought about him, I thought the one point he had that was good was he said, look, I'm mega rich. Now, that's debatable now, but at the time. And he said, the one thing is, I'm, most politicians do it for the money. He goes, I'm not doing it for the money because I don't need the money. So I can't be lobbied or bribed. And I thought that's a strong point. But the problem is, you're a fucking idiot. That was that yeah, was the, right. the the real issue. So, but anyway, you I don't know. To, you guys have got to vote someone in under oh under God. sixty. It's just insane. Yeah, you did go to Roswell, right? I did. Yeah, and weirdly, of all the conspiracies, and again, what is a conspiracy? You know, there's been recent stuff come out in Senate, and uh, 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 that means you know, there's probably a bit more truth in. UFOs, or as they're now called UAPs, there's definitely valid people who aren't crazy, who have seen stuff and people, you know, fighter pilot uh, cameras and stuff. But Roswell is completely detached from that. Roswell is kind of like Disneyland of UFOs. Roswell shows no one would ever visit Roswell if that UFO hadn't supposedly crashed there. But as it is, the whole town is a one business town. Even the lamppost, the streetlights in Roswell look like alien heads. The McDonald's is a zinc UFO shape. Dunking Donuts is a donut <laughs> held by a 30-foot uh, alien. I mean, it's it's fantastically brilliant, but it's also totally fucking stupid. It's very odd. <laughs> is there, do you find- And also, I mean, the obvious joke to me, which I know is obvious, but it is true. It's like, if there are, and there must be, uh, the idea there's no other intelligent life in the universe and we're the only people, it's bollocks, it's arrogant. But if there are UFOs visiting us on a regular basis, what is their absolute insistence on kidnapping hillbillies and alienly probing them? Why don't they just land outside the United Nations and start negotiations? I don't know what it is they're after, but it (laughs) it doesn't make sense to me. And what would they say? Why why would – I'm sure you've posed the question. Well, a conspiracy – so a conspiracist would say to me, well, you know that there have there been thousands of other UFO encounters that didn't involve hillbillies being alienly probing. But by bringing that up, you're kind of trying to make light of it. And, you know, like, so everyone laughs about it. And there is an element of truth to that. I think Area 51, yeah, it seems to me, it, Area 51 was where America was testing some very new types of planes. And obviously they far preferred that people thought it was UFOs rather than actually taking the thing seriously. So there's definitely an element of camouflage, and it, it, I don't know. The whole thing's really odd, but I'm telling you now that most UFO things are odd. But then you see things like there's one over um, Phoenix, Arizona, where these seven lights in a very clear formation hang above the city for two hours, and about 10,000 people see it and film it, and you can't explain what that is. So I'm not saying they don't exist, 
It's just the UFO industry is, is a ludicrous thing. You know, yeah. it's like Mickey Mouse trying to sort out the moon landing, you know. <laughs> of course. And then, uh, but I think a lot of these things, especially around Roswell, where there is uh, a lot of military bases and air bases and things like that, that, that maybe, they're, maybe they are trying experimental planes and things like that. And maybe they don't want to admit the stuff there was top secret or whatever it is. But didn't the um, U.S. government even come out? recently in the last couple of yes. years and say, yes, there are UFOs. And guess what? Nobody gave so that, a shit. Nobody cared. So that's, so that's my point. But actually, they not only did that, but they've changed the term UFO. Because actually, UFO means unidentified flying object. Right. And before that, they were called Foo, Foo Fighters. Foo Fighters, the band, got that name because that's what World War II fighter pilots used to call weird things they saw. But UFO, you immediately think alien. But actually, it just means you've seen something that you don't know what it is. It can be anything from a comet to a planet to possibly an alien. They've now changed it, I think, to UAP, which means unidentified something, something. I don't know, aerial phenomena, I think. Um, so they haven't proved anything. But, yes, the New York Times ran a big story saying there had been an area of the government that had been set up to look into it. And there were a vast amount of quite credible footage from people that weren't mental and weren't trying to go for publicity, airline pilots, fighter pilots who'd seen things. So there, there is something happening, but what it is, who knows? Do you find that conspiracy theories are more prevalent in the West, or is this a worldwide thing? It's a worldwide thing, and it's always gone on. I mean, for instance, when the Spanish flu, which was way, way bigger than COVID, happened in World War I, there were a vast amount of people thinking it didn't exist, didn't want to be vaccinated, but they were less in touch with people. So I think it was less global. I grew up in the Middle East. In the Middle East, constantly, there's this belief that everything that happens, you know, in Lebanon, anything that happened, it, was, it, it wasn't just because shit happens. It was because there was a hidden hand and America was behind it or Russia mm. was behind it. And often they were. So no, I don't think it is. But I think the internet has mobilized them and it has not only brought them together and, and made them a kind of sizable group, but then it also constantly feeds them rubbish, frankly. You know, even if there's truth in some of the stuff, most of the stuff is just because it's clicks and it's money, you know, and people just want to see shit. Right. What of all of the ones that you investigated in the book, um, which ones do you think are the most dangerous in the long term? I think. Well, I think dangerous are things like I thought COVID was very dangerous. I, if you don't want to take a vaccine, absolutely, that's your, you know, your that's that's your decision. No problem with that at all. But when you put out f scare stories about what vaccines do to you and stuff, so that vulnerable people who could be saved by vaccines don't take them and then die, that is very dangerous. When people, you know, use pseudoscience to really stop people from getting the benefits of proper science. I find that terrifying. Um, the only conspiracy I really believed, weirdly, is is the COVID one that, you know, supposedly COVID started in a wet market in China from a bat. And it just so happened to happen 500 meters from the main lab dealing in coronaviruses in China. So it seems yeah. to me obvious that there was a lab. there was a lab leak. China would obviously try and hush it up. But the problem was Trump started getting a bit racist and calling it Kung Flu and stuff. Yeah. And because we're so used to Trump talking bollocks, I instinctively went the other way. 
Because the problem now is there's no room for nuance. There's no thinking ground in the middle. You're either on what you're either on one side or the other, and that's it. We we become tri tribes, and we just whatever our team does, we're with them, and that's a massive danger. What do you want people to take from the book, and what did you take away from it? And and in writing it, did it make you, I don't know, more depressed about what where we're headed, or did or uh, did your opinions change in any way? Not really, because I don't know any answers. I really don't. And so I, my whole point of my books, I hope, is that I go off and do stuff and people can follow my adventure and they are funny to read. But also a lot of my readers say that when they finish the book, they learnt a lot without realising it. And I hate that because that sounds like I'm teaching people. I'm not. It's, it's a weird mix. I just want people to think for themselves. Don't believe. I, I suppose my main takeaway is anyone that tells you they know the answer, don't trust like it's so weird. We're in a world now where to be a weakness in a politician is someone who flip flops, who changes their mind. To me, I want politicians who, when the facts change, they change. I want people to go. You know what? I got that wrong. I've changed my mind because more and more we're being driven by algorithms and social media into the polar extremes because those are what gets clicks. You don't get any clicks or any attention online by going. You know what? On the one hand, I think this, and the other hand, yeah. that it's bollocks. And I think it's a really dangerous thing. Yeah, so my my I come from a line of scientists. My parents were scientists. My mom actually worked on vaccines um, around the same time as Fauci. She knew him in Chicago. She was doing you know clinical research uh, for things like at that time it was about HIV and cancer and things. But I remember when this happened, and everybody said, well, last year they said it was this, and now they're saying this. It's about. I go, yeah, they're learning that's <laughs> the more they know about it it's not going to be the same you know that's what science does it, it does just research and then it moves on and then it changes they had a theory about what because it was that's the before. That's, that's the other that's problem how is, that's how you learn <laughs> of course but that is com the complete opposite to the internet which loves a kind of gotcha yeah uh you know mentality which is like oh my god you said that but you were wrong and it's like i want more people to go yes you know, I did say that last year. Now I've learned more. I've realized I was wrong in that. But I wasn't lying. I was saying what I thought was true at the time. And it seems now we're not allowed to, like, change our mind or do it. It's a, That's the danger, I think. Yeah, I tell young people who don't weren't around for the uh, AIDS crisis, I go, Listen to first us. Time, we're talking about young I know, people now. I know. This is, <laughs> this is, this is how it happens. Um, but, I mean, yeah. during the AIDS crisis, we thought you could get it from, like, kissing someone on the cheek. Or shaking hands or something. Yes. And we didn't know. We didn't know anything. And then you learn. No. <laughs> and so, But in those days, we had nowhere, no real way of researching. Right. You know, so we had to listen to people. Now it's almost gone the full opposite, that almost there's too much research. You know, that, that phrase that everyone uses, you know, do your own research and stuff. It's like, fine, do your own research, but you've got to know how to research, you know, because otherwise you're just a fucking idiot. Like, right. you know, like, I mean, I mean, I could prove, if I wanted to, I could find someone that would prove any point I wanted to make. So, you, I don't know. This well, is turned into a very depressing conversation. Which no, I know, be. but if you don't have critical <laughs> thinking skills, you're going to be in trouble on the internet. You know, it, it just, it's too yeah. much information it, coming at people that But also, it. the moment, if I, if I see online in anyone's bio the words critical thinker, that's a massive red flag straight away. Because <laughs> yeah. I think critical... 
I think critical thinkers probably don't announce themselves right. as, as well, that. Well, let's talk about you and some of your dream places. Your dream places you want to go. What's on your bucket? Okay, so that's a great question. So I am weirdly and totally obsessed uh, with two places that I haven't been to. Well, loads, but my top two. My second highest is a place called Turkmenistan. And that I'm very obsessed because I, I think it's probably oh, yeah. not that brilliant a place to go to. But that, as a dark tourist, I'm obsessed with for lots of reasons. He used to have the ruler of Turkmenistan, a dictator, was the ultimate kind of idiot dictator. He built a sort of 100-foot statue of himself in gold that it, it, I kind of feel if I ever became a dictator and just went for it, this is what I'd do. He built a 100-foot statue of himself in gold <laughs> that rotated to face the sun. He also changed all the names of the days of the week to that of his children. It's, it, it's an ego so out of control. And again, a nightmare to probably live under, but just so weird and out there that I'd like to go there. But also once you get... It's very it, It's North actually Korea. even more than North Korea. North Korea at least pretends to have a semblance of <laughs> caring. This is just total ego control. Saddam Hussein would have been drooling with envy at those thoughts, you know. And then... And then when you drive out of the capital of Turkmenistan, there's a three-hour drive into the middle of the desert, and there's a place called the Gates of Hell, and it's, a, it's just a massive hole in the desert, about the size of two foot, football fields, yes. that is constantly on fire, like gas coming up and stuff. And I just, I just that's a place I've always wanted to go to, and I've nearly gone twice, and for reasons, you know, just weird reasons I haven't. And so it's kind of always annoyed me I haven't been. But my number one place to go in the world is Algeria. I'm obsessed with Algeria. Uh, and for ages, it was you couldn't go there because it was like having a vicious civil war. And then I tried to go, and they told me I was banned uh, because I'd written something bad about them. And I knew that I'd never actually written anything about Algeria. And actually, I was a massive fan, but you can't persuade them. I think I'm now allowed to go. But I just, I, I'm looking for a reason to go. I'm obsessed with Algeria because it's, growing up in Beirut, Algiers was supposed to be the other Beirut. It's a beautiful French capital uh, with hills going up behind it. It has this belt by the coast that's got pine forests and is like the south of France. But then it's also got this incredible desert, proper Sahara, with kind of perfectly preserved um, Roman cities in it. And on top of that, it has an interesting background because it wasn't just a French colony it was actually part of France, like more than a colony. It was like when you were there, you were in France. And they had a very, uh, very massive sort of rebellion and revolution there. And it was where the world's first suicide bomb came for it, as a, you know, as a by the by. And my favorite film of all time is called The Battle of Algiers, which is a sort of seminal film in black and white, which basically is a kind of film recreating the battle for uh, independence. And it actually uses the, the, the terrorists in it, if you're calling them terrorists, are actually the real people that are in it. It's the most extraordinary film ever. So I'm obsessed with Algeria. And no one seems to go there. I don't know so why. So what is the, uh, the strangest thing you've ever eaten in another country? What is the one you're like, oh, I can't believe I even put that Well, it's, it's not the strangest, but it's the only one that I'm, I'm shamed by. But I kind of validated it. So I was in North Korea. And we got to this place and we were given a kind of, it was almost like we were, because they don't get many foreigners. And it was a kind of North Korean culture day and it ended with a big feast. And, that, and you really, there's no food in North Korea. It's shit. I mean, it really is. But on this day, there were all these beautiful gold yeah. bowls and it was kind of this big formal dinner. 
And I, the moment I walked in, I kind of felt I knew what it was, but I didn't want to ask. But in the end, I did. And, of course, it was a ginseng dog stew. And part – so I, to, to clarify, I love dogs way more than humans. I have two dogs in this room right now who know what I'm talking about. Uh, I also, But there was a part of me thinking, I need to experience what it's like. The dog is already dead, so that's not going to change. And, you know, I've got to write about it. So it's all mealy mad, but I did it. And I thought I got away with it. And I came back from North Korea and I walked back through my front door and I had two black Labradors and they both stared at me and I stared at them oh. and I realized that they knew. They just knew. They were just like, there was a sort of weird look of shame and horror in their faces. And I've been embarrassed about it ever since. So that's probably the... The, the most shameful thing, but I've done a couple of weird reality shows in, in England. And I think the best thing I did a show called, do you know who Bear Grylls is? Are you familiar with him? He's the, yeah. So he yeah, does a show called the Island where you get dropped off on a, literally a desert Island and no help, no, the camera crew embedded with you. And all it teaches you, you're there for three weeks is how shit you'd be if the rapture comes. And I tried to do things I'd remembered and seen. And the one thing he told us was that if we could find it, there was a plant, a yucca plant, which if we found it and dug it up, its roots were a bit like a potato. It would give us carbs. And I just, I was so hungry, I could barely move. I hadn't eaten for nine days. I'd lost a stone and a half. And I found a yucca tree. And I remember coming back into camp, holding this up. And honestly, it was like I'd, I was a caveman who, you know, killed a, I just felt so like alpha male and I was God in the camp and we had to boil it. We boiled it for seven hours and then we finally started to eat it. And after an hour of eating it, I think we finally all looked at each other and realized this wasn't yucca. We were just eating wood uh, and it was, it was wood. But weirdly for the half hour before we realized it, it did kind of, it was, it, it did work. It like made you not hungry, but yeah, it was. It, so I think boiled wood is probably the weirdest thing I've eaten. Good Lord. What, what possessed you to go on that? Cause I interviewed a woman on here uh, years ago. She was on naked and afraid, which is a reality show here. I'm obsessed she, with that. She was, so I'm obsessed with that show because the, uh, with another guy, with a stranger, listen, you know? Yeah, but I'm, I'm obsessed with that show because it's such a brilliant concept. And yet the main concept of that show that they're naked and and then they pixelate them, and they give them these weird little bags that they can cover themselves up. So I always think they cop out on that show. <laughs> but the reason I do these shows is because, firstly, I, I, I have a real problem saying no to things. And, you know, when are you going to get the chance to do that? Even if I had all the money in the world, I wouldn't be able to do that. And you do want to see what it's like. So I just think, what the fuck? I mean, why not, basically? So you're on for three weeks. I mean, normally they also – yeah, I lasted. So the best thing was two – Two, you know, 20 years earlier, I would have walked day two, but I lasted and, you know, I didn't walk off. I lost three and a half stone, which again was a great thing. Normally I paid to go somewhere for that. <laughs> the only bad thing was that there are things called sand flies. And when you lie on the sand, they kind of burrow into your leg. Yeah. And when I left, they'd actually laid eggs in my leg and I still, oh. they're still in there basically. So yeah, oh but it's, it's, it's amazing. It's an amazing experience to do. Where was this island? So it was. So they do it on a different island every time, but it's part of an archipelago off the Pacific coast of Panama, just above the literally most inhospitable place in the world, which is the Darien Gap. You know, oh, so yeah. every single every I think Australia is 
supposedly the most dangerous place on earth. But I think this place just tops it. Wow. Wow. So who ended up winning that season? So that, uh, so that show is not a winning one. Oh, okay. You don't get voted off. Anything. And actually, it's good and bad. I did it for charity, which is great. But, you know, let's face it, I didn't cure cancer and I didn't get paid. But So that was annoying. I did do another show, which is called I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, which is the biggest show in, in oh, yeah, I know that England. One. And I ended up in... So I ended up in the Australian rainforest there. And the best bit about that is that you just end up with the most random group of people. So you probably won't know them, but I had 10 campmates. I had Britt Eklund, who used to be married to Peter Sellers and Rod Stewart. Sure, of course. I had had, um, uh, Happy uh, the the lead singer of the Happy Mondays. I don't know if you know the band Happy Mondays. Sure, Manchester. Um, uh, Who... Yeah, who was just famously the man who's taken more drugs than anything else. And I also had a guy called Nigel Havers, who was once up for an Oscar for Chariots of Fire. And he was my favorite because the one thing about those shows, the best, what producers want on those shows are people that have no idea what the show is. And he'd said yes to the show, but had clearly never watched it. And I think he felt on about day two, you could see he was looking around thinking somehow there'd been a mistake and he'd been sent to Guantanamo Bay. It was just, it was just fantastic. It was just the weirdest bunch of people ever. <laughs> and how long did that last? So I, I just love those experiences. So, uh, so that one, you do get voted out slowly. And, uh, I came third. So I did brilliantly in that. It was really good. <laughs> oh man. Uh, any, uh, any more coming yeah. up for you? No, I don't. Uh, no, I don't think I, I, I can't think of one. I, I did get offered one just recently, uh, where they were going to, again, a charity one, where they were going to teach me to learn to do the high wire in Austria for three weeks. And then I was going to do a live high wire across a ravine. And I I kind of always say yes. But then the next day I was thinking, holy shit. But then actually that one was paid. So I was going to do it and then it just disappeared. So I think probably either they did a pilot and killed someone or the insurance wouldn't cover it. Right. So I probably had a lucky escape there. What's the most useful thing Bear Grylls taught you? Uh, well, weirdly, Bear Grylls teaches you nothing because you turn up there, you, you're taught in two days, everything, you desperately try and take in the information in, by these Royal Marines who don't like Bear Grylls. And then Bear, Bear Grylls <laughs> just appears on the beach just as you're about to go. You have a photograph taken with him. He then gets on the boat. He takes his top off, which I think is a contractual obligation. Of course. Drives you to the island. Then he does this thing called the Bear Prayer because he's a Christian. And and the crew all groan because he does it every time, but no one ever shows it. And then he literally just kicks you off the boat and then just disappears to another franchise. I mean, he's he's an incredibly interesting guy. And his last words to us was just be nice, which <laughs> which is true. Like in those situations, you lose your shit, you get grumpy, and you're aware that you should be nice, but it's it's about, you know, actually being nice. It's very difficult. The only thing I did that I was proud of is, again, I'd watched another survival show with a guy you probably don't know, but he's called Ray Mears. He's a kind of the sort of guy that does shows where he builds canoes out of, mm-hmm. you know, out of tree trunks and stuff like that. And I once saw him uh, setting an, a, a, a termite, a termite mound on fire and they burn for like three hours and then you can carry fire. And I remembered that. So we had to move camp. So I remember setting a termite uh, hill on fire and carrying fire and thinking, this is it. I'm, I'm, I'm an alpha male, but that's, 
the only thing I did that was good. <laughs> that's incredible. That's so that's that's awesome. Well, if you um, we should talk about the uh, where people can get the book. You can get your plugs in now. Where can people follow you on social media? And I'm assuming the books at Amazon and all where where all books are sold. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to you to not get it on Amazon, but you know what, well, Amazon is very easy. It's everywhere. The best place to go is if you go to my website, which is www.domjolly with one l dot tv, and everything I do and all my books and all stuff are there. And people always ask me, "Is that your real name, Dom Jolly?" And I think honestly, you think I became a comedian, and I thought, yeah, you know what, I'm going to call myself Mister Jolly. <laughs> <laughs> but spell it wrong. So yes, it is. It is. It is my. It is my real name. But yeah, so everything there is great, and uh, and the book's doing quite well in America. So I'm very excited. Dumb jolly. Because I married TV. a Canadian, and yes, that's right, with one L. Okay. Because I married a Canadian, and when my big show Trigger Happy sold to 80 countries, but unfortunately, the one country it didn't sell to was Canada. So it meant when I met my wife and I had to go to Canada and meet my in-laws, my in-laws were like, "So what is it he does?" <laughs> And I had to explain to them that Stacy just went, he, uh, it's difficult to explain, he just shouts into a big cell phone. And you could see just the look of total, just despair and embarrassment <laughs> on their faces. So I'm, I'm hoping if this book does well, they'll respect me a bit better. <laughs> uh, so what do you think all this, uh, the travel you've done and, and the different experiences you've had and the cultures you've lived in and visited all, the, all this time, how has it changed you as a person and how has it changed you in how you look at the world? Um, it's, it's such a weird question that because I'm not, I'm not having a go at your question, but it's because I have, I don't know what it would be like if I hadn't, but I think I've always, since I was a kid, been an outsider. I've always kind of, when I was in Lebanon, I was English. When I was in England, I was this guy that lived in the Middle East. When I was in Prague, I was a, you know, an English guy. So I've always been a sort of observer, someone who's slightly floating above watching stuff. And I love that. My comedy was about that, about looking at the weird things in life and taking the piss out of them. And I think my books are the same. And I think the only thing I learned is I think more and more as the world's going to shit, we're starting to blame it on the other. We're starting to blame it on the people that don't agree with your point of view or immigrants or foreigners and stuff. And I think all that stuff comes from ignorance and fear. And I think what's great about travel is that you realize that everyone, wherever you are in the world, they're not all brilliant. Like there, there are idiots in every country, like there are in our country. There are nice people, bad people. Essentially, we're all the same. There's nothing to be afraid of. So don't blame the other. Don't blame the immigrant. Don't blame the foreigner. Blame the character. Blame the bad guys in any culture, not the good guys. Because I do still think, but maybe I'm wrong. You know, maybe I'm... Uh, Maybe I've been brainwashed, but I do still believe there's a good side and a bad side, and I hope I'm on the good side. I can't wait to read the book. It sounds great, and then I'm going to dig deep on your other books. Yeah, I mean, The Dark Tourist is where you want to start, because it's, it's, it's great. It's very good. It's one I'm proud of. It's a proper travel book. Dom, I appreciate you doing this. No worries. 